Open up to Mark chapter 15, please. Mark chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 41 this morning. And if you have one of those old things like paper Bibles, um, you, you'll notice we, there's not much left here in Mark. Uh, we, we actually just have three sermons left today, and then next week we'll actually officially finish out Mark chapter 16, and then we're going to follow that with a third message where, where Josh Montague will kind of come, a, come in and bring a, as he skillfully does, bring some concluding summary thoughts through this this magnificent book. It, it's been amazing. We, we have been, I, I didn't realize, I looked at the, the calendar yesterday, September, actually it was the last Sunday of August last year, um, September we've started the book of Mark. Um, and we've taken some breaks here and there, but it, is, it has been enriching, it has been beautiful, it has been transform, transform, transforming for us. And as we have mentioned again and again, Mark has been telling us this, this story of Jesus. And so we can understand who he is. Who, he, who is this man? The, the identity of Jesus and why, why he came. What was his mission? And then what does, it, what does it mean to then respond to encountering Christ, to, to follow him? And, and today we come to a section of, of text which has been considered really the, the climax of Mark's gospel. The very first words of the book we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And following those verses, we read that Jesus' Jesus coming is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophetic words. And Jesus affirms them throughout the the book, making it explicit that he is this long-awaited Messiah, but he's coming in a very unlikely way to his throne. It's, It's coming through a suffering. It's coming through Isaiah 53, you read this morning, the suffering servant. And the prophet John, at the very front end of this book, recognized Jesus was sent from God. We see this baptism, the very first, very words, the heavens are torn open and the Father declares Jesus the Son. You are my beloved Son. And we're coming to the end and we're going to hear another declaration that echoes those very things. But it's been... this. This identity of Jesus has been met with all types of responses. Immediately, Jesus is met with resistance by Satan himself. We observe all kinds of rejection. Others follow Jesus, and they witness great faith by often the unlikely people. Demons acknowledge his divinity, and it's culminated to the religious allying together for his murder. And the story is, is slowed down. I mean, we've traced years of his ministry thus far, but it has slowed down to focus tightly on the final days, the final hours of Jesus. And it, we have been in, for a little now, the week of his passion. Jesus has been abandoned by his disciples. He's been sentenced to death. He has been beaten. He has been flogged. And now at the conclusion, we come to Jesus' crucifixion. And it is filled with with words and action that again draw us to 
fulfillment of prophetic writings. In particular, this section of text to a psalm, Psalm 22, is a song of a righteous sufferer lamenting and crying out to God in the pain of loss, of rejection, attack from his enemies, and this experience, what feels like this deep separation and rejection from God. And we will see it is actually Jesus' prayer that flows from Psalm 22. And so we're going to navigate our text this morning, and we're going to be drawing attention to Psalm 22 and others and other verses throughout. Now, Andrew alluded a little bit to it in this pastoral prayer, but to be honest, it it has been kind of a a wrestling this week as I've moved into this this text. Um, So all of God's texts, all of God's scriptures and words, we should come to with holy reverence, realizing these are the very words of God. But there are certain times you come to areas of of Scripture and you just realize, how how can I even expound on this? What what will I say that will do justice to the gravity of what's going on in this this passage? And I I felt that this week. Um, And so we're going to pray here in a moment after I read this text, but we're just going to ask the Lord to be with us. And for him to speak, for him to do his, his good thing. Because I just simply want to communicate what God wants us to hear, what Jesus wants us to see. So as we look at our text this morning, we're going to be seeing that the cross is where Jesus fulfills his mission and brings before us the fullness of his identity and his plan as the Son of God. It's where Mark has been leading us. It's, it's where God is going to bring us today to, to see his Son, to hear from his son to know why his son came and and by God's grace to confess our hope afresh in Jesus and who he is as the son of God and so let's read this morning I'm going to actually pull back just a little bit to verse 20 the very end of that and then we'll pray and they led him out to crucify him and they compelled a pa- uh, compelled a passerby Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him there and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this, was, this man was the Son of God. And there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary of Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Would you join me as we pray? Well, Lord, we come to your word this morning humble. Humble to know that, that any, anything, that would, anything that would lift off these, these pages, these typed words, that would do something to our heart, that would change us, that would shape our affections, that would, that would save us. Lord, it is a work of your kind mercy and grace. And Lord, I, I want us, Lord, I want my own heart this morning to, to be able to hear the cries of Calvary and, and to, Lord, be changed by that. To be moved to worship and praise and trust and hope in you, Jesus. So would you come by your Spirit, do that this morning through your preached word. Amen. So Jesus was scourged by the Roman soldiers, and the horizontal beam typically would then be laid upon that person that had been beaten, carried then to be crucified, and it's likely Jesus was too weak to carry that, and the guards commanded a bystander to, to take it. Was it someone random? No. No, it was God's plan. It would be a man, Simon of Cyrene. Mark includes his name along with his sons, Alexander and Rufus, possibly because Mark, as he's written to this, the Christians in Rome, would know who these people were. Rufus is named in Romans 16. And it's possible that we're being instructed here in this moment as Jesus told his disciples, he told us that if anybody would follow him, we would have to pick up our cross and follow him. One commentator asks the question, did Simon's experience cross-bearing his faithfulness after this moment lead in turn to the faith and discipling of his sons who are now following Jesus too? Just kind of pricked my own heart and just remind, I was reminded and probably encouragement for each of us fathers and mothers that, that our kids are watching our cross-bearing, our following of Jesus, and what an impact that will have as they see. So Jesus is taken to Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and he's offered wine mixed with myrrh, which is possibly some primitive narcotic to kill pain, and Jesus refuses it, and it says there that they crucified him. It's the third hour, that means it's 9 a.m., 
and the crucifixion was was one of the most horrible forms of torture in history. Many of us we know this. We've we've heard these details. Roman slaves and the most violent of criminals. This would be done to them, not Roman citizens. It would be done near highways as people could walk by. They'd get the most and largest audience observing the power and display of Rome's authority and control, and no one is to resist Rome. The crucifixion was followed by flogging. You were then stripped naked, and these large spikes were pounded into your hands and into your feet, purposely avoiding any arteries so that you would not bleed out, but that you would die slow and painfully over hours and often over days. Shock heart attack, asphyxiation, or all of those. Psalm 22, we read, the psalmist cry out, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. So Jesus has been pierced. He's been lifted up and he hangs likely stripped naked, and there his clothes being gambled for by soldiers below him. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. They just gloat in pride and mockery. With a sign intentionally to communicate more mockery, the king of the Jews... And as we've been seeing, one of the very ironies of all of the mockery and suffering, everyone calling him king, unknowingly declaring the very truth of who he is. But all of this mockery is is God's God's plan. He's moving his purpose of salvation forward. They're mocking and rejection before the Sanhedrin. Jesus is mockery before the crowds, before the soldiers. And now Jesus hangs between two robbers and criminals, one on his left, one on his right, fulfilling Isaiah 53. And he was numbered with the transgressor. All this mockery, it's a, it's a chorus of humanity rebelling against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Every voice of every human that would ever exist would be caught in this chorus. Deriding, hurling, hurling insults, wagging their heads. This, this word hurled insults is, is actually the word for blasphemy. They're cursing God as they pass by God. The very thing that Jesus has been condemned for, they are doing themselves. Save yourself! Come down from the cross. The priests and the scribes. He saved others. Look at him. Can't even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. The two criminals join in in the mockery. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. The Lord does delight in the Father. The Lord does trust in the Father. They unknowingly fulfill God's prophetic plan of salvation as they wag their heads and there's venom in their voice. The Son is fully entrusting himself 
to the Father. You see, they wanted Jesus to perform a miracle so that they would see and believe. And yet, in their religious arrogance, they thought that is what would help them see and believe. They didn't want to see and believe. Christ, in whom they should believe, was right in front of them. Jesus taught us about parables, quoting Isaiah in Mark chapter 4. They may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. The one who hears and sees is the one who sees and hears by faith, not by faith on a miracle, but by faith on the person of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God comes to those who see by faith in Christ. And they didn't want Christ. They were blind in their arrogance and their pride. And if they wouldn't be, they would see salvation and forgiveness right before them. The very thing they wanted him to do, come down and save himself, is the very thing that would keep him there, his desire to save. Jesus did not come to save himself, but to save others. He told us in Mark 8, 35, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life for his sake will save it. It was the cup and the baptism of suffering that Jesus was there to drink and receive. It was part of his messianic plan. His disciples blindly asked to be at his right and his left as his glory ushered in in his kingdom. But Jesus alone could take that. And here he was, to his left, is to his right, criminals. It was now the sixth hour, which was 12 p.m. It is noon. Three hours now have passed, and it's, it says darkness now comes across the entire land. Darkness is a picture of judgment. Consider darkness was one of the plagues in Egypt. It was the, the plague right before the last and final plague of Passover, and darkness covered the land. Israel was warned in Deuteronomy, if they broke covenant, curses would come upon them. And God said, you shall grope about at noon as the blind people grope in darkness. Israel did break covenant. God sent them into exile in judgment because of their sin. And it says that they will stumble at noon as in the twilight among the vigorous as though they were dead. Blind people unable to see at noon because of the judgment of sin. Because of the rebellion against God. And it was darkness of humanity that was being atoned for right here in this moment. A picture, the darkness surrounding Jesus. The darkness happening to Jesus. The darkness going in to Jesus. The crushing wrath of God the Father against the Son because of humanity's broken covenant, because of lust and hate and greed and pride and sexual sin and every other sin against Him in this moment. It was now the ninth hour. It is 3 p.m. and it's been six hours of this agony. Six hours of this pain, of this reality, of God's wrath upon the Son 
And we see in verse 33, Jesus cried. Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sigbachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breasts. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. Jesus quotes Psalm 22, 1. He, he makes it His prayer. He is the one that makes this ultimate interpretation of the experience of the psalmist as he fulfills this as Messiah. He suffers. He cries out. His complaint, his agony, experience of utter abandonment. And yet it was a cry of faith and trust. My God. My God. Jesus' ultimate suffering was not the scourging and the nails or the mockery. It was this, this God-forsakenness that He was experiencing on the cross. The hours of agony in this painful aloneness, the brokenness of this intimacy of fellowship. The presence of God, the Father was present, but not in sweet fellowship, but of, of condemnation. We must know the eternal unity of the Trinity was never broken in this moment, but it was a radical experience of judgment and wrath and the most horrific experience that anyone would ever experience in history. And yet in Jesus' cry, it was a cry so that He could identify with humanity in the brokenness and darkness and the loss and despair of His people that they would ever face, and it was a cry of one as a substitute, as Messiah on the wooden cross, as He bore sin and darkness and rejection and the curse deserved for His people. He forsaken so they would not be forsaken. He taking the curse so we would not experience the curse. Deuteronomy 21-23, because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse he's fulfilling his mission church he told us in Mark 10 24, 20, uh, 45 giving his life as a ransom for many the cup of God's judgment the baptism of God's judgment was given by God and is now being taken by God the son of God Commentator Peter Bolt put it this way, In the cross of Christ, God entered into His own wrath. The judge has been judged in our place. This is the cry. This is, this is what is taking place. This final cry. He spoke it in Aramaic and His cry, Eloi, Eloi, likely sounded like, 
Another name similar to the name Elijah in Aramaic could be why somebody mistakenly heard and said, is this what he's crying for? And they run and they grab some sour wine to give him to drink. Psalm 69 tells us, reproaches have broken my heart so that I may so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none, and they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. They did not understand that John the Baptist had already come preparing the way for Jesus in the spirit of Elijah, for Jesus, the true prophet of the Lord. God was the Messiah hanging there on the cross. And he uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. Jesus dies. Imagine being the onlookers there, knowing that that moment took place. But here's what Mark does. Here's what Mark does. Here's what God does. He brings our attention to two very important things swiftly in that moment. Imagine, imagine the camera being upon the Savior, upon the cross. He breathes his last, and then the camera immediately cuts to the temple. And we read, look with me at verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now the temple had two very large curtains. They were huge. They were heavy. They were massive. One of them led from the outer courts into the interior of the temple. Only priests could go into this area. And the second was, was from that area into the Holy of Holies. It was there that God's presence dwelt. And it was there that only one permitted was allowed to enter into this area, the high priest, one time a year. Only one man on one day, the Day of Atonement, where you would apply blood to the Ark of the Covenant to make atonement for the sins and the rebellion and the uncleanliness of God's people. What is God showing us? This, is, this was torn from top to bottom. This very curtain, this tearing came from above to below. Mark uses this same word only one other time in his, in his gospel in chapter 1. When Jesus is baptized and it says the heavens were torn open and the Father speaks, you are my beloved Son. Heaven transacting with the earthly. And Jesus in this moment is bringing again us in touch, the heavens with the earthly, the holy with the sinful. And what is happening? His blood being poured out for many by this action, by Jesus' death, He opens access for sinners to move into God's presence. Not by goats, not by lambs, not through a priest, earthly priest, but by His blood, the blood of the new covenant. And He gives access. He gives access then not just to Jew, but to all nations. You see, Jesus is rejected by all men, and He took the judgment due against all men so that He could save all men. In Psalm 22, we hear these words, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. 
All nations shall come in faith to the Son of God. The cry of the Savior brings this access. And this is what we get to next. The camera then cuts back to Golgotha to a soldier standing there observing Jesus. Here we find our climax. Verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way how he breathed his last, or saw how he died, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. In chapter 14 and 15, there's this continual interchange. Jesus affirming he is king and rejection and mockery. Confession and mockery. Crucifixion and mockery. And here in the final scene, at death, the response, faith. Faith. An amazing realization and confession of a Roman soldier of who Jesus is. And it's not from a Jew. It is not from one of the twelve disciples. It is not from Jesus' family. It is not from a religious leader. It is a Gentile. It is an outsider. It is one who is participating in this very execution. A man maybe who even held a hammer earlier. Irreligious unclean, therefore an enemy of God. And it is not the Father's voice from heaven declaring Jesus' sonship and divinity. It is not a spirit demon admitting Jesus' divine sonship. For the first time throughout all of Mark, a human being is making a a confession. The most unlikely. The most unlikely outsider, sinner, enemy of God declares truly This was the Son of God. Notice our contrast. The scribes and chief priests mocked Jesus, asking Him to come down so they could see and believe. And here the soldier is standing. He stood facing, it tells us. Looking upon Jesus. Broken body. Torn flesh. And He sees and believes. It is Jesus, the suffering Son of God, on the cross that awakened faith for this man. James Edwards writes, In Jesus' death on the cross, a Gentile outsider, a Roman officer in charge of Jesus' execution, becomes the first person to confess Jesus in faith as God's Son, thus fulfilling the purpose of Mark's Gospel. While Jesus is alive, humanity wills his death. And it's only in his death can humanity see him as the way to life. The death of Jesus on the cross is thus not a defeat, but the consummation of his mission and the climactic revelation of his identity as the Son of God. This is why you would say the cross is the intersection where God meets humanity. Saving confession is not predicated on prior knowledge, proximity to Jesus, or privilege. It is rather an act of faith in a divinely revealed act of atonement. The centurion's confession is the saving proclamation of the church. It brings us full circle. 
Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he preaches, repent, and believe in his gospel. We see his life. We see his ministry. We see his suffering. We see his death. And it is here at his cross that we witness an accurate confession of who Jesus is and true faith on what he did in his mission to save. Not by man's wisdom, not by privilege, not by class, not by religious groups, not by doing this or not doing that. It is beholding the crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, that awakened faith upon this man's heart. Ransomed for me. What radical thing did he behold? This, this, this suffering, this love, this mercy that he saw upon the bloody Savior. This was the Son of God. It is there at the cross where we discover Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And it is there that we see what He came to do as the divine Son to bring salvation for His people. That is why this is our confession. That is why it's central to what we do and why we follow Jesus as His disciples. As Edward says, the saving confession of the church. The repulsive, ugly death of a man on a cross becomes the object of beauty and faith and hope and worship for His people. And then we read in verses 40 and 41 of some women looking on from a distance. Witnessing the same thing. Witnessing Jesus' suffering on the cross. This is an awesome little section and we consider what Mark has done through his gospel, how he tributes honor and the faith of women over and over again. These were women who were with him in Galilee and they followed him and they ministered to him and many other women came up from Jerusalem could we see maybe a contrast in all of the scattering of the disciples leaving this affirmation of these faithful disciples, the honoring of these women who, who looked on like this, this soldier witnessing and yet faith. And what we'll see here next week, they're the first ones that move towards his tomb. I was just thinking about this text this week, just reminded of the, the faith that I observe in the women in Cross of Grace looking to Christ, following Christ worshiping Christ that bolsters my faith Jesus fulfilling Psalm 22 as the son of God went to the cross willingly experiencing the forsaking that we deserve as if it was his own so we don't have to remain at a distance to look on from a distance but we can have access and come near this is what Hebrews chapter 10 tells us therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us, what do we do? We draw near. We draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to our confession. 
to our confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We can confidently come to Jesus because of what he did, his flesh, his cross work, that is his broken body, his blood poured out death on the cross so that we could draw near to him. We can come near to him and that we could hold fast to our confession. Not because we have been faithful, not because we have earned access, because he has done that for us. Jesus, you are the son of God who came as a ransom for my sins and I will not be forsaken. You were forsaken so that in the darkest of night, in the deepest place of suffering, when it feels like abandonment or the hardest fall in my sins, Jesus, I can be near. There really is only two confessions that we can make in the end. We will see Christ and we will reject Him. We will deny Him and scoff at Him as Jesus, King, Son of God. Or we will see Him and we will believe and we will confess You are the Son of God. Those are the only two options we have. The theme throughout Mark is that we can be near, people can see miracles, some could even be present right at the cross seeing the Savior and yet be stuck in hard-heartedness and blindness. It's not proximity. It's not being in a church religious context. It is looking at Jesus and placing your faith on what He did on your behalf for your sins, that you trust on Him as Son of God. I don't know if you're here today, and maybe, maybe you're like these religious leaders who would just say, Jesus, if you would just do this and this, then I would believe. And you continually make excuses to trust on God. If only you would do this, Jesus, then I would then have faith. No more excuses. No more excuses. Place your hope on Jesus today. He is before you, showing you all that you need to see, and that is His suffering and death on your behalf. Because of your sin. The intensity of this moment. The intensity of this moment as disciples, as we hear these cries of Calvary, it's known as the cry of dereliction, of abandonment. I mean, you consider this, this soldier. Why? We went over sort of the why of, of why him... Why, why you? Why me? Why do I have eyes to see? Why do I have eyes to see and a heart to look at Jesus and have faith and confess Him? Remember, Jesus called His disciples, beginning of Mark. He called them by name. Follow me. Jesus calls when He, when he stretches out His hand and His power and He, and he opens blind, eye, blind eyes. He, he, he calls, He speaks, and, and there are storms that are Still, he speaks, and there are those who are bound by evil spirits, and they're delivered. 
Jesus uses now here all of his authority and all his power and all his purposes, and he and he stretches out his arms and he and he's pierced. The climax of his redeeming work, so that he could let sinners see who he truly is, and they can have faith upon him. Men and women, you and I, this soldier. What is our response? What should be our response? Why me? God, what mercy. God, what love. I love what Sinclair Ferguson writes. He says, when we think of Christ dying on the cross, we are shown the lengths to which God's love goes in order to win us back to himself. We'd almost think that God loved us more than he loves his son. We cannot measure such love by any other standard. He is saying to us, I love you this much. The cross is the heart of the gospel. It makes the gospel good news. Christ died for us. He stood in our place before God's judgment seat. He has borne our sins. God has done something on the cross which we could never do for ourselves. But God does something to us as well as well for us through the cross. What does he do? He persuades us that he loves us. The cross is at the heart of the gospel and is there that he persuades us. He persuades us who he is, the Son of God. He persuades us of why he came as a ransom for those who are sinners, who are separated from him. He persuades us of what he has done, the great lengths he has done to save And he comes to us, persuading us, inviting us to confess him as Savior and Lord. Are you persuaded this morning? We look to the cross. We look to his cross. That's why we don't move from his cross. That's why we come back again and again to his cross. Because we want to be persuaded of his love. We want to be persuaded that we have been invited to draw near to him. We want to be persuaded that he is welcoming all sinners to come to him never too far to come to him let's pray lord thank you for thank you for this persuasive reality that comes by your cross your forsaken your forsakenness so that we would not be forsaken Lord, your brokenness, so that we in our brokenness could be healed, Lord, and, and so that in a picture of this centurion, the, the most unlikely one, the most radically distant, the maybe the most, what appears in this story, very guilty, Lord, we, we are like that, undeserving, yet you show mercy and kindness for us to see, to make sense of those cries of Calvary, to be not one just blind or embittered or mocking or immune or indifferent, but to hear those cries and say, this is the Son of God who has died on my behalf. Lord, this morning, awaken our hearts in fresh ways to that glorious, merciful, loving, 
reality so that we could, through your flesh, through this curtain, which is you, we could enter in and we could be near you. Lord, I pray for those who maybe are aware of their unfaithfulness and their failing and their sins and feeling they cannot draw near. May, Lord, your forsaken place on the cross be the persuasive word that they could draw near today. If there's any here that are just waiting, beckoning God to just do one more thing to prove, to being proof that they could believe, Lord, would you allow your cross, your God forsakenness on that cross, be the persuasive word to trust today? Maybe for those who felt distant from your love and your affection, Lord, would you allow the persuasive word of what you have done, the great links of what you have done to draw us into your love. May that come today. Oh, how you love us, Lord. Oh, how you love your people. Oh, how you want to be near and with your people. And thank you for what you've done to do that. Amen.